standard, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Say it again. I saw something on Facebook, and I said... And just if you're in the rumor flow, that would be fine with me. Just, just in case she says, well, I don't know if he'd be uh, off guard or discouraged that, that would be fine with me. I'll bring my little black book tomorrow night, too. There's another couple that we're, Juan and I are getting away for a week in, in February, and the fact is we're going on a little cruise, and... Uh, well, it's not germane to this. But I'm bringing my little black book on the cruise, too. Yeah, you never know who you might meet that needs to get married. Yeah. Yeah. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they're where we're starting. We're going to look at, particularly at verse 4. Luke chapter 2, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, and I pray that I am faithful to your spirit, to your word. I thank you, O God, that by your spirit you moved the writers of scripture to write, and they didn't exceed and they didn't omit that which you had them right. You were, this is your word, it's not their word. And so I want this morning for this to be your word and not my word. I pray toward that end, God. I need your help. I thank you for meeting me in the privacy of my study, and I pray that you'd meet me now in the company of my friends to uh, be able to share that which you've put on my heart. Uh, help each of us to be able to take something from this message this morning that would make us more in the image of your son, Jesus, whom we love. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Familiar portion of scripture here. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Hmm. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Back to verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. 
What do you know about Bethlehem? I, really, open mic for a second. What do you know about Bethlehem? Anybody? Because I've got a couple things written down. Besides that Jesus was born there. What do you, what, let's, uh, time for you to show off in your little uh, New Testament or Old Testament skills. Anybody got any skills? What do you know about Bethlehem? Anybody, anything? One of it's a secret in here. You can sort of uh, pry this open a little bit and uh, see something from that verse, verse 4. You make an observation. It's where David's from, Wanda, yes. Great Old Testament scholar, Wanda, yes. Good job. David was born in Bethlehem. He sure was. So that's probably one of the most notorious things about Bethlehem. Anybody else? You probably don't know, but uh, it's where Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, he had a wife named Rachel, and uh, she was buried there. So we got David born there. We got Rachel buried there. That was no small landmark back then. You know, it was a big deal, you know, the, the burial place of Rachel. Remember, that was the wife that Jacob really liked, that he worked seven years for, and then he got Leah instead, and then finally he got Rachel afterwards. Anybody else, anything about Bethlehem? Do you know? Any? How about proximity to Jerusalem? Anybody know how far away from Jerusalem it is? It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. So let's say Bill Lundy Road is Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be nice? Bill Lundy Road is Jerusalem. It would be down around the high school, or what's five miles? Uh, you know, 90, the high school or 90. It would be down, so about that far out of town, south of Jerusalem, um, five miles uh, down there. It's a puny, even today, it's just a wide spot in the road. The biggest reason it's more than a wide spot in the road is because some entrepreneurial uh, you know, residents realized that Christians, A, go to Israel in droves, and B, would want to go to a place that could, they could be believed would be the birthplace of Christ. And so because they made the Church of the Holy Nativity, is, it's built over and around uh, this cave-like structure, and they've got it all set up there like a little nativity scene in there. Uh, because of that, and because who wouldn't want to go to Bethlehem and see that site, Bethlehem has you know, swelled a little bit in a, in a commercial business, although they try to keep it not so commercialized. It's not like Walmart-like, but it is very... The reason it's as big as it is is because they know that they want to help the... Pilgrims part with their money and buy a trinket, particularly an olive-carved trinket is what you can uh, buy in, in Bethlehem. So that's it. Yeah, inns aren't what, in, yeah. Uh, right, it's not a holiday inn. It's somebody who has some extra rooms, uh, you know, that, that's the guy that's known. It's more like a lodge, where, you know, like a big house, someone with a big house. And that, you know, they would call that the end. They would pay and trade to stay there, but it wasn't as commercial. But it, it is just a small little place. Lower Hill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Except the directions are opposite because Bethlehem South. But, but that, let's not split hairs. Yes. Okay, the word Bethlehem means house of bread, so it has an actual etymological meaning. So many names in the Old Testament have an actual translation, so Bethlehem means house of bread. More on that in a minute. 
So why Bethlehem? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? I mean, this wasn't a cultural city. This was no New York City. This was no Jerusalem. This was no religious city. Uh, This was just a a little town of Bethlehem. Why, Why was he born there? First of all, and we covered this in Sunday school a little bit. I was hoping that Ray wasn't going to teach my whole lesson in Sunday school. But first of all, some 750 years before Bethlehem, 750 years before Bethlehem, the prophet Micah announced uh, under the direction under the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We looked at that. It's in, it's in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. If you wanted to put it back up, fine. Oh, yeah, actually, I'm going to read from it in a minute. Um, so let's look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Yeah, I just want to, but the, two, the whole 2-5 uh, works. It, it definitely points to Christ, and we studied that out in Sunday school. But to you, Bethlehem, uh, uh, Ephrathah, too little to uh, be among the clans of Judah, for from you one will go forth from me, a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, and this is the most important thing. Odom is the uh, Hebrew word here, from the days of eternity. Odom speaks of somebody that is eternal. That not many I- I- eternal, we're all eternal forwards, but we're not all eternal backwards, amen? We had a definite start. You could Add three months, I don't want to get too graphic here, but you could add three months to your birthday and figure out roughly when you had your little start as a little bright idea in your mother's womb, you had your little start. And, but Jesus, I need to remind you, did not have his start in Mary's womb. Okay, let's just review that for a second so we're all clear on that. He didn't start there. The worlds were created by the word of God. The, the word of God spoke the worlds into existence. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we, we see that. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. And we see in John chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens. The, uh, no, 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 that's uh, Genesis 1. Uh, John 1. Come on, I got so hung up on, I'm going to have to flip there. Yeah, one fourteen. We're going to turn to 14, but I'm going to read the first couple of verses. Can't believe it. Uh, uh, Genesis one overtook me so powerfully that I can't. In the beginning was the Word. I'm not there yet. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Uh, and in He was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay. So whatever this Word of God was, it was a with God, and b it was how everything was made. And then down in verse fourteen, it says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was the word of God, the creative part of God to create the whole uh, universe. So he, was not, he didn't start, friends, in Mary's belly. He started, he, he had no start, and that's what that word Odom, uh, back in verse 2, uh, from everlasting, from eternity, uh, means. Tiny, tiny little Bethlehem, then, would be home to a big savior, um, we know this prophecy is about Jesus because it, it, it talks about his eternal existence, and we know he is eternally preexistent. It, yeah, Micah predicted the place of Jesus' birth 750 years prior. I want to put a perspective check on that. This would be, as let, let's just say, 
this would be the same as if someone who lived in the um, 1200s, let's say in the year 1214. I don't know anybody who was alive there. Let's just say Nostradamus was living then. I don't think that's when he lived, but let's just pretend it was. And he said, Oh, you Honolulu, the 44th president of the United States. Uh, well, there's some debate about this, too. But, oh, you Honolulu, the 44th president of the United States will be born to you uh, in Honolulu. Way back in the 1200s. And then it wouldn't be until the 1960s that um, Barack Obama, the 44th president, was born there. I mean, it was like the 1200s to right now is the same as it was from Micah to Jesus. So it was a long, long time ago that Micah uh, pointed forward to, in other words, it wasn't two and a half years ago. It was a long, long time ago, a ridiculously long time ago, that Micah would identify uh, Bethlehem. And so it was necessary to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that little did uh, the governor know when he said that there needs to be a census taken over the whole known world that uh, he was actually helping fulfill prophecy of 750 years prior. So Joseph went there. He took an inconvenient trip there. It wasn't, you know, he had other things to do. He had a life as normal that he was living up there, but he had to go to register for the census. Verse 3 back in our text. I'm sure he didn't feel like traveling. It's expensive. It's an imposition. Uh, but he had to go, and I'm sure that Mary felt like traveling even less. Probably a full eight months, maybe eight and a half months pregnant. You know, we've seen the little pictures, depictions of her on a little donkey riding probably, let's see, Nazareth to Bethlehem, 90 miles, maybe 100, between 80 and 100 miles, traveling down the Jordan River Valley to finally, and then up, 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 up to Jerusalem, and then over uh, the last neck of the way over to uh, Bethlehem, the house of bread. We're not told too many details of the visit, um, only the one that uh, Reba reminded us of, that the inns were all filled up, and that dear couple was holed up apparently in some sort of animal quarters, all, all back then. Just like in the western part of, I mean, in, in the Wild West, at least in the movies I see of the Wild West, uh, you know, everybody's house always had a place where you kept the horses, you know, and even the, uh, ho a good hotel would have a place where you kept the horses out back because everybody traveled in horses. It would be like a parking lot for us. You know, you wouldn't have a hotel without a parking lot today. Well, there was no place without the horses then. And so there was no place for them in the inn, but they were found uh, some kind of shelter in the animal stable, and young Mary uh, had to use a manger, a little feeding trough for a crib. I imagine that from the Lord's point of view, let's do that for a second. Imagine this from the Lord's point of view. Uh, one minute, he's in the throne room of heaven. Remember, he was eternally preexistent. And as a preexistent, as God preexistent, he was being worshipped, he was busy, he was in the throne room of heaven. And then uh, the next minute, he's born constrained to the body of a human being, and not just any old human being, a human being that was uh, being wrapped in cloths, laid in a feeding trough, hearing for the first sounds that he heard were animal noises, making their animal noises, smelling the first smells. Animal smells were the first things he smelled, and there he was laid up in that um, feeding trough. Uh, it gives fresh meaning 
to uh, Philippians, and I'm going to turn there. You can too. We lost Dave for a second, but that's okay. We'll fill, we'll, we'll do it the old-fashioned way. Philippians chapter two, and I'm going to look at verses five through seven. Uh, Paul wrote, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something he needed to grasp, but he emptied himself. This is talking about his trek to earth, particularly his trek to Bethlehem to start off with. He emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of of man. Jesus, the bread of life, humbled himself to be born not in a palace, uh, not in a cultural center, not in a religious center, uh, but among the lowest and the simplest of all people. The people of Bethlehem were definitely, and I, don't, I, I say this as a compliment, not as, a, uh, not, as a, not as anything else, they were the people of Laurel Hill. They were just regular, good old folk. Folk that would shake your hand and mean whatever it was that they said when they, they shook it. They weren't city slickers that are all tied up in high finances and, and fancy this and fancy that. They were just regular folk from Laurel Hill. And that's the, that's the kind of culture, the kind of people that Jesus, uh, the environment that he was uh, born into. As an aside, I want to teach you something this morning. Did you know that our English word Lord has, uh, I'm going to teach you a 10 cent word first. Etymological. Does anybody know what etymological means? It means when you study, etymology is the study of root words. So when you, and it tells you where a word came from. Sometimes they used to study Latin, and then you study Latin, you can see that this word comes from that word, that kind of stuff. But um, the word Lord, if you study it etymologically, it means the one that provides or protects or distributes bread. The word Lord is the keeper of bread. It's an old English word, and it means the keeper of the bread. And I thought that was very interesting because Jesus was born in the, uh, the uh, city of bread. That's what the, the, the name Bethlehem means. And he is the uh, giver of bread. He who kept, guarded, and uh, guarded the bread also safely um, and steadily supplies it to the people and he is their Lord. Interesting. At least it is to me. Back to Bethlehem for just a minute. Back to baby Jesus for just a minute. Back to Paul's remarks about Jesus' humbleness. And this is where I want us to really focus the magnifying glass this morning on Jesus' humbleness of Philippians chapter 2. That's where we are, Dave, by the way. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Though Jesus existed as God, verse 6, he emptied himself, verse 7, and became a slave, became a bondservant. I don't even know how to begin to preach about what a big step that is. To be God, the creator of everything, the one through whom the whole world was spoken into existence, and to be willing to go TDY, And not just visit as God, but visit by taking on flesh and the form of mankind whom you're going to serve and save, teach about the kingdom of God. But ultimately, 
in those clothes of flesh, you also know God knew what was going to happen. It was part of the plan. And, and so I have to believe that Jesus knew that as he was clothed in flesh, not only would he uh, experience all the things that we people experience, and there's a whole message there, and it's not today's message, but you know, we don't have a high priest that doesn't know what it's like to lose a loved one. We don't have a high priest that doesn't know what it's like to, uh, to get hurt. To, to, you know, all the things that we experience, Christ experienced. And so we should take heart in that. But he knew that he would have to experience those things firsthand, close up and personal uh, as a human being. But he also knew that as time clicked on, his popularity would go way up. But then the very people that were uh, embracing his message, 98% of them would turn against him, shout, crucify him, crucify him. And that he would end up the, the, the body that he chose to live in would end up being smitten, torn apart, rejected, and ultimately hung on a cross uh, to die. And he was willing to do that. He, see, the willingness to come to earth and to be a bondservant isn't only exemplified in Bethlehem, that he would come to Bethlehem, but it's that he would come to Bethlehem knowing what was down the pike for him uh, as he grew older. We're told, to we're told to imitate this one who was willing to leave heaven and to be born in a stable, to be laid in a manger. That's the context of Philippians chapter 2. We're told to imitate that. Look, look two verses up just from right where we were at verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul's writing, Do nothing from, selfless, uh, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out at your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you see the lesson that Paul's trying to teach us here? He's saying, by the way, I'm going to say it for him. He, he's beating around the bush a little bit. Uh, I'm going to say we tend to be selfish. This isn't just a bad habit that you pick up. Selfishness. I want to talk... We're going to talk frankly today. This isn't just a bad habit that you pick up. This is human nature. One of the quirky things that you may not know about me is I spent almost a year, and I, don't, <laughs> I can tell you the story how it happened, and I look back and I still can't believe it happened. Not only did we work for a couple of years at that Teen Challenge Ranch, which was very interesting for me to learn about what makes young boys that are wayward tick, but... Within the next couple of years after that, while we were trying to get back straightened out after I left that ministry for reasons we'll have to tell you over coffee someday, um, I found myself as the, do you even call it a headmaster? No, you call it a director of a day, what do you call it? Daycare. Little kids from birth to like when they're, until they're ready to go to first grade or ready to go to public kindergarten. I don't remember if they were P4s or 5s or whatever they were. But, uh, so now I've had four kids of my own, so I've seen one, two, three, four examples of this right in a row. But here's the point I want to make today, and I've seen it firsthand with more than just my children. Unless you think that my children are alone corrupt, 
I want to tell you what I saw as I would walk the halls and check on my teachers and see those little kids. I'm talking about an 18-month-old kid who knows how to be selfish, who knows he's learning the word my and he's learning the word no, and he's learning that when he's playing with a ball that he didn't buy, his mom didn't bring, it's just a ball in the classroom, but he's learning that when he's playing with it, and his little friend Linda comes over and jerks it out of his hands. That doesn't have a happy ending. Because they're learning selfishness. I want this ball. I want it now. Yeah, you can't have it. And we don't have to teach kids selfishness. We have to deprogram selfishness from kids. So I said all I said everything I said in the last three or four minutes to say that. We are naturally selfish. This just in. It's not just children. We never outgrow selfishness. You are at your core. I, this isn't a very happy message this morning, what Pastor Cliff's telling you, but I'm just telling you like it is. At our cores, I'll preach about myself instead of you. I feel more comfortable. At my core, I'm a very selfish person. At my core... I look out for my interests first. Sometimes in the morning, we'll find the covers. Wanda will say, look at the covers. Guess where they are? They're all on my side of the bed. Even in my sleep, I've got selfishness down pat. I mean, we're programmed, we're programmed to look out for number one, and it takes real discipline in our spirit to say to ourselves, you know, Put that in check and think of other people as more important than yourself. That's a foreign language to, our, to, to the way we're wired. We're, we're creatures of sin. We're born in sin. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. We, we know how to sin, and selfishness is sin. And Paul's writing here in, in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard uh, one another as more important than yourselves. I'm just here to tell you that if, if that's not the way it was, he wouldn't need to write it. If you already were wired where I was always looking out for you, and I'm always looking out for you, and I'm, all, and I'm never looking out for myself, Paul wouldn't have to spend his breath. He wouldn't have to write the ink on a piece of paper about this. But it's not the way it is. In our hearts, we so often are caught just looking out uh, for what, we call, what the world calls looking out for number one. If Bethlehem, the stable, the manger, model anything to us, they model these two verses about not letting selfishness uh, rule our lives, but with humility consider uh, each other more important than ourselves. I, again, I really want to you know, keep talking about just these thoughts this morning, uh, especially um, here at Christmas. Are you humble in your mind so as to consider others as more important than yourself? Are you, so now we're talking about humility. We're talking, a little humble Bethlehem gave birth to a little humble Savior, so that there could be an example, Philippians chapter 2, of humility. 
Are you humble? It's okay. Because I'm almost done and then, yeah, okay, go ahead. She's going to go get the chicken. Are you humble enough to go get the chicken? Are you, are you uh, humble so as to consider others as more important than yourself? Remember, this is an exercise that you're not born with. By the way, somewhere one day, and the proverbial way is, the preacher said, is there anybody here? Raise your hand. I see that hand. And then he said, if you raise your hand, why don't you come? I want to pray with you. I'm not doing this to embarrass you. I just want to pray with you this morning. Come on up here. And then you knelt at an altar, and he prayed over you, and someone knelt beside you and whispered a prayer to you, Jesus, forgive my sins. When you pop up from that thing, you're not immediately, I hope you were able to say amen that you understand this, you're not immediately relieved of your selfishness. Your selfishness didn't just evaporate because you committed your heart to Jesus. It's nice that you got saved, but, and then it's nice that you got baptized. But you went down a dry, selfish person, and you came up a wet, selfish person. We have to work on our selfishness, all of us, all the time. It just doesn't automatically uh, leave us. And I, I wonder if, how, how are we in our humility in when it comes to considering others as more important than ourselves. If you were one that would dare to answer, yes, I think I'm humble, I'm not going to ask for your hand because I don't want you to be embarrassed one way or the other. If you said, though, that, yeah, I think I am humble, I think I uh, get an A in that department, then that means you never, ever, get cross with a waitress at a restaurant. She forgot to bring your coffee. She forgot to refill your coffee. She brought you the wrong dinner. She brought you a cold dinner. She brought whatever. Sometimes, and, and it, maybe we usually do well, but sometimes the day's just not going good for us, and we get cross with uh, the waitress. I'll tell you, I've been preaching about, and waitress is a common thing for me to bring up. I mean, if you've been listening to me for a couple of years, you've probably heard me bring up the waitress example at least five, maybe ten times about how we need to be her happiest experience of the day and not her grumbliest experience of the day. And it's not hard to be that. I mean, you just have to think about it and really try to do it. My, my challenge is not to be nice to the waitress. I, I really do give myself a, a solid B-plus in that department, and I, I kind of want to give myself an A, but I don't want to seem like I'm bragging. Uh, I, 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 tr I try to be friendly and have fun with the waitresses. Believe me when I tell you that no waitress is waitressing because that's what she enjoys doing. She's not waitressing because, you know, she just, you know, that's her little hobby. She enjoys, you maybe were fortunate enough to work in life at something you really enjoyed doing. I'm fortunate enough to work at something I really enjoy doing. Waitresses are, def, are, are generally trying to pay the bills. It wouldn't be unusual that there's little hungry kids at home that would have nothing under the Christmas tree if mom wasn't wait, bussing tables and waitressing tables. They're, they're not just out there to buy another Cadillac. They're out there to pay the light bill uh, at, at the table. So I, I kind of got that figured out, and I really try to be on my best behavior and, and make, make my visit with that lady's table a, a bright spot. But where, where I don't get my B plus is this next little example that I thought of jotting down here. Uh, uh, it, 
my right and says, never drive revengefully when you're cut off. I still struggle with that one. When people, you know, this is what it is. It's down by that armament center all the time. I come off that red light going towards the city in the right lane, and I know full well that in about a half a mile a mile there's a little merge left thing. And I'll wait until there's a big spot to merge to the left there. And I don't know what possesses people, but there'll be a car five car lengths back, and as soon as I put on my blinker, he thinks it's his civic duty, because he's already in that lane, to zoom up there and have to get by me. He wasn't in the process of getting by me until my blinker came on. What? See, I feel like I'm in a little Catholic confession booth right now, and you're my priest. You're going to have to tell me to do so many Hail, Mar Hail Marys or something. Now, I just drive a little car, so usually he gets away with it. He gets by me. But once we get back out into that three or four lane down on the top of Eglin, I don't know. I feel like there's a score that just needs to be settled there. It just comes on me, and I'm like, wanting to be like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm getting back in front of that guy. He was ugly to me back there. So I struggle with, I'm just confessing, okay? And, and, and I'm mindful what I'm doing. She would say, you know that's not right. Why are you doing that? You know you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be acting that way. But it, it's where my struggle still is in traffic. Someone deliberately cuts me off. What I want to be is I want to develop myself to be mature enough to I can say, Lord, that person's in a big hurry. You bless them. I hope there's nothing going on in their life that they're having a hurry to the hospital or you know, some bad news or something. And I, and I want to be able to speak a blessing over them when they cut me off and just hope that everything's going okay. And I get a D minus in that department right now. I'm not proud of it. I just wanted to grab an example of, you know, we're talking about humility this morning. When someone cuts me off and I drive revengefully, it's humility that, that I don't have that makes me want to go back at them. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not considering him as more important than myself. I'm considering me as more important. You cut me off? I don't think so. Uh, we're, you know, that, that score needs to be settled right now, and uh, I, will, I will regain my rightful place. Were I truly humble, I would just say, and I've been with people that were truly My dad would never come back and cut back someone off. He had it figured out, so I hope that I can be big like my dad was. Never, uh, oh, here's another one I wrote down here uh, about humility. Never complain to your spouse about how they treat you. Hmm. Uh, I don't think I do too bad there. I don't know. She's gone, so I could probably say things to get away with them right now. Oh, it's recorded. You, if it was too much, you could say, you better listen to the record. Uh, you know, but... What's the proverbial thing that I see on TV and always hear about? You know, he just throws his socks on the floor. Well, so let's just talk about that one. And I could probably think of one for the girls, too, but this is the one for the guys. I'm a guy, so I'm thinking of the guy one. Guys, we shouldn't just throw our socks on the floor. It, it's enough. I wrote my, uh, you're going to think I'm really soppy and soggy here in a second. I wrote my wife a poem once about 15, the kids were all small, and I was home to babysit. And I had really underestimated how hard it was to, to watch four kids at once. I mean, how hard could it be? 
she was gone for like all, she like, it was a dinner and then all night she was gone. So I was babysitting for probably from four till 10 o'clock at night for five or six hours. Nikki turned my back on him and there's eardrops that are supposed to go, guess where? In the ears, you know, topical. He sucked that thing dry. So I'm on poison control now, wondering if I'm going to get arrested because we didn't have it in a high place out of his reach. And the other kids are just doing whatever little kids do. They're all over the place doing all stuff. I wrote Wanda a poem. And I said, you know, Wanda, I had never thought, how do my parts of the poem are, you know, I never thought how my socks just keep getting repopulated right into my drawer, all clean and ready to use. How whenever I open the cupboards in the kitchen, the dishes are clean and, and the cereal's in place. We're never out of stuff. The cheese is always in the little meat drawer. The milk is always on that shelf. And, you know, we tend to think, well, that's just magic. That just happens, you know. Guys don't stop and think that someone's keeping track of all that stuff. You know, it's the reason I brought that up is it's enough that a wife will pick up a hamper full of dirty clothes and carry it and touch dirty clothes, put the whitish kind of clothes with the whitish kind of clothes and the darkest kind of clothes, handle the stinky socks and get it all and put it in this little folded squares and put it back in your drawers. It, that little trip, that little chore doesn't have to start with picking stuff up off the floor. That's where I was going. So, you know, when you, when I, if, if I expected my socks to be picked up by my spouse off the floor, I think I'm getting failing grades on considering someone else is more important than myself. That's a pretty low thing to do. It's bad enough I maybe leave a dirty dish that all of a sudden disappears and gets washed and put back up in the shelf. But uh, there's a line somewhere. Sorry I wandered, mate. Beat that so, so bad to say. Uh, so beat that up so bad. It's, it's easy to say we regard others as more important than ourselves. It's another thing entirely to do it. That's the point. Uh, so I don't care about what you confess. Oh, yes, Pastor Cliff, I definitely treat others better than myself. I uh, need to know how you actually do it. Verse 4. Don't merely look out on your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's face it. We're wired, we're programmed to look out for number one. We've been taught, if you don't look out for myself, nobody else is going to do it. Um, we're, we're told to watch out for the needs of our fellow man. Now, I'm going to, there's an interesting subject that I'm going to hit in 2013, Lord willing, about miracles. I want to speak a couple weeks about miracles specifically on learning how to uh, allow God to use us for a miracle, but I want to just make this little teaser right now today. Uh, God uses us to be miracles in other people's lives. God doesn't usually use us for our own miracles. Uh, we'll, more about that in 2013, but we look out for other people and allow God to use us. Suffice to say here that God's method, methods of miracles are seldom for uh, of and about ourselves. They're rather, they're for, of, and about other people. Um, and, and only as we begin to notice the interests and needs of others and put those things before our own self uh, does God begin to meet people's needs through us. Uh, a real quick example of that, and I don't want to turn there, time's not become my friend anymore, uh, is over in 1 Kings 17. You might remember the story. 
Um, Elijah had just been supernaturally provided for by, remember this, the ravens. He was at the dried up brook and the ravens brought him food. Um, and then he went into a little town. He was really hungry. And he said to a widow who had a son, the, the Lord told him to ask her for dinner. So he did. Elijah went to the widow and said, I need dinner. I need something to eat. And she said, you don't understand. I'm gathering sticks in order to cook the last. This is the last of my meal. And this is the last of my oil. We're going to eat this dinner and we're going to die, he told them. Now, just a pause button there and aside. If I asked you for dinner and you told me, well, I'd love to help you, but this is my last dinner we've got and then we're going to die, I would not press the issue. Elijah did. Elijah said, the Lord wants you to take care of me first. And that lady looked out for the needs of Elijah before she looked out after the needs of herself. And she fed him that little cake. She baked him a cake, and she gave it to him. And something very wild happens next. Do you remember the story? Every time she went back to her little flour jar and her little oil jar, the Lord made sure there was an adequate supply in there for her for that day because she was a conduit to be willing to be used to meet someone else's needs because she looked out after someone else before she looked out after herself. The Lord made sure that at the end of the day, she would be okay. That's why the psalmist uh, wrote, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed uh, begging for bread. We do what's right and the Lord will take care of us. Okay, we've wandered far from Bethlehem. I'm going to wind up right here. Bethlehem is where God himself put your needs above his own comfort. For you, for me, we need a savior. Uh, we need a human being to come and die in our place, a perfect human being, and there was only one way that could happen. Anybody born of a woman, I mean, anybody born with a human father, just a little tri trivia fact for you for today. Sin, you're born with sin. David said it in, in Psalm 51. Um, it comes from the Father. Maybe you didn't know that. You girls can sigh a sigh of relief. However, if you were born the natural way, and virtually everybody except for Jesus was, your father, when, when you were conceived, made sure you were conceived uh, in sin. Not necessarily the act of conception, but, you know, because it was the father's seed, the seed of the father, the sin is passed on from generation to generation. And so this is how God could get away with picking Mary and not have it be a human father sinful seed. And she could be impregnated by God. And there is no sin from the mother that would be attributed onto the child. So, uh, so she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit and... He was born sinless, lived sinless for the specific purpose of dying in my place, of dying in your place. Because if he died a sinful man, he, the death he died would have been for his own sin. But since he died a sinless man, uh, it was what I call leftovers. He shouldn't have died. But because he died, uh, an innocent man died, which means that uh, we can have our sins paid for. So Jesus came to that uh, city, that little city, Bethlehem, to a stable to be laid in a manger so that he could be 
live and die and ultimately take our place on a sinner's cross. And my thought for us today is, what do we do with that uh, act? What do we do with that Jesus did that for us? How do we process that? Do we ignore that? Do we say, that's nice, nice story? Or do we say, Lord, I need to be more like you. I need to uh, consider other people's needs as more important than myself. But square one, you know, it's like shoots and ladders there sometimes. The game of life is like shoots and ladders. But square one is, have I properly appropriated that gift, that, that, that uh, Christmas gift of God by Christ to myself? Have I, have I taken advantage of that? Or is it just a Christmas story for me? So I want you to reflect for a minute and, and uh, ask yourself and, and um, examine your own heart and say, Lord, you know, thank you for Jesus uh, and for him living and then dying for me and, and renew that commitment um, that we have to, to be cleansed from our sins and to imitate him and to prefer others over ourselves. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you uh, for the work of Christ and he certainly had humble beginnings here on earth. He lived a life of humility, indeed always exemplifying caring for others above his own self. Help us to be like that. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that each of us will have, will today have completely surrendered our lives to you. Help us not to have an area of our lives that we're holding back on. We, we need to give you every part of our life. Every thought of our life, oh God, has to be committed and sacrificed to you. Every action there's nothing hidden, O oh God, from you. With thanks, we pray, forgive us of our sins. Lord, we love you and praise you and honor you as our king. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.